Hi, and welcome back to the AMPS podcast. My name's Owen Peters. And I'm Owen Shirley. And we're here just to introduce the second part of a conversation taking place between Andrew Wilson and John Aldred. Andrew is asking John all about his life in film sound and beyond. Yeah. Now, as well as discussing the later stages of John's career, he also reviews um, several highlights of his working life, um, which include mixing the first ever IMAX film, developing film prints for in-flight films, and, and also working with the Russian embassy during the war. So we'll hand you back to John and Andrew now. So you basically managed to get out before things went crazy with Dolby surround and computers. I, 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 was, and... I, was, I was on production mixing and I, I missed out. I never actually mixed a Dolby mix with a Dolby guy sitting there saying, you can't do that and you can do this and you can't do that. I missed all that. Right. It was, uh, I was, I was freelancing and after another thousand days, um, things fell apart a bit and I saw an advertisement for a job in Toronto. So I applied for it. In fact, I was one of 17 people and then it fell to me to have the job. And um, I was there for a 12 month contract to see if I was any good. But having just had a Oscar nomination for Anne. That's why they wanted some of that. So, um, yeah, so I was there for a year and did some some Canadian pictures, which were rather strange, may I say. One was called Heart Farm, about a doctor who uh, collects hearts for a hobby or a business. It doesn't matter how he collects them, so all sorts of people disappeared. They only wanted their heart. And then he worked on that in his heart farm, put them into different people. Wow. Um, but one thing I, I was glad of was that around that time um, I was mixing with different people coming in and there was a guy who did multi-screen work for festivals and stuff and he was looking for something that he could better than 35 millimeters so he can get a big image and uh, at that particular moment there was a, a chap in Australia who invented a method of moving film through a projector without a, without a normal sprocket system. He used jets of compressed air to like push a loop through, like, like shaking a, car, a loop carpet loop. Anyway, so this uh, gentleman um, went, out to New, went out to Australia and, and bought the patent on the spot and was surprised that nobody from Hollywood had beaten him to it. So he came back and developed the system with his engineers, which of course became IMAX. Right. And at that time, uh, he'd just made his first film in IMAX and he brought it into where I was for uh, final mix. So I worked, I did the sound on the first IMAX film, which was right. called North Superior, being Lake Superior. Right. And what it was based really on, it was on a life going on in the, around the countryside, which culminated in a huge forest fire. And uh, that's fine because the camera got really close and some fantastic photography on that 70 millimeter image. But then they bring it in and they say, well, here it is, just put some sound to it. So rummaging around and this company's sort of sound 
effects. So it was rather dismal quarter-inch stuff. I did find some fire crackle, but when you amplify it and mix two or three crackles together and place them in a cinema with nothing else, just loud crackle, it'd be surprising how effective it becomes. Yeah. Because we had uh, three screens, left, right, centre, and left back and right back. That's five tracks. And for the sixth track, one in the ceiling. Right, yes. And that yeah. came in handy when, in the middle of the forest fire, I put a helicopter flying overhead with a tunnel announcement, which just said, evacuate, evacuate. <laughs> and the sound editor from Hollywood saw this film as I'd mixed it. He said, well, that's a good idea, that. Well, I do like that, yeah. Good, but the producer didn't. He said, can't have that in this film. He said, the audience will get up and walk out. If you support that, and you have to take it out. So I had to remix the whole film and take that bit out, which was just loops of firecrackle. So it shows you can be creative and shot down in flames yeah. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. No, tell me about it. <laughs> but uh, after that, uh, he wanted to keep me on and uh, to, to coax me into accepting another contract. He, he kept slipping glossy manuals of new cars in front of me, you know, all that jazz. And my wife said, I'm having none of that. She said, I'm going back to England and you do, you, do, do what you want. I thought, well, that's a rather nice attitude. <laughs> so in the event, I, I came back to England, and having said goodbye to everybody, I then had to say hello again. <laughs> Which is round about the time when I went after Bequest. Right. Into the laboratory. And, and, and that's what you did until you retired? Yes, indeed. Right. At 65, not a day, not a day after that, out you go, son. Right. And, so, and then you went to Spain, is that right? I decided to go to Spain and live there. Um, there's a, a couple of sort of other things that I'm curious about. Um, have you got a favourite project you worked on? Favourite project I worked on? Um, well, without thinking very deeply, I can't, nothing springs to mind immediately. I think probably uh, Working the first stereo film, um, it was Guns of Navarone. Mm -hmm. That great, was uh, quite interesting. Right. Uh, and Carl Thorman was the um, producer. He was quite appreciative. Not to the extent of giving me any malt whiskey, but um, <laughs> in, 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 he gave me little letters and things. Um, because my, 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 my line boss, who I used to work with, um, he'd mix the film and then he'd get a, get a mag master and then he'd disappear on holiday or something and then I had to clear up, do all the photographic work, transfer everything to photographic. Uh, and any foreign versions, I'd do all that. Do you have a least favourite? Yes, there was one music session I did where uh, I just couldn't get it right. You only do get one occasionally. Um, there was a symphony orchestra plus a Cuban orchestra. It was far down below, I think, the name of the picture. 
and I, I never got the title music to my satisfaction. It wasn't it wasn't right. But time and space, it went. It just had to go. And I, I felt disappointed. I thought, you know, I must be able to resolve this somehow. But it, was, it didn't. I couldn't. I just couldn't get it. Because presumably you weren't recording to multi-track or any stuff like that. Three track. Yeah, but you didn't have. You weren't recording it all down and then mixing it oh, later. Oh, oh, nothing like that. We didn't have the equipment for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what's your your take on where we are now with films now? Well, um, because it, it's in the last few years. It's it's. I mean, we've had the evolution from Dolby with surround, and then we had Dolby Digital, and now we've got Dolby Atmos. Yes, I, I've yet to hear Dolby Atmos film, so I can't really comment on it. But um, my experience from earlier days tells me that it's uh, it's not really a gain; it's a it's a disturbance. Um, when Fox first introduced CinemaScope, and they had the sound leaving the screen. And they, they also had sound dialogue, I mean, um, edited in such a way that uh, it jumped all over, left, right and centre, and it did not work. Right. You, you had to have dialogue solid centre. As long as that was going, you could add to it a little bit here and there, but not very much. And when sound, they did, they did put out an edict that no sound must leave the screen, so to speak. But that's, that's sort of in the 1960s. I don't know what the producers think today about uh, Atmos. I don't know. But I, they, think, I think by and large today, the dialogue... Zombie think the dialogue very highly of it, um, and they push yeah. into everybody to try and install it. Uh, I think by and large, everybody... I think the dialogue is still on the screen. There's one or two... I, the, the exception that springs to mind where I think it really, for me, it did work is yeah. the film Gravity. Yeah. But it was all CGI and yeah. there's where is up and down was kind of constantly yeah. changing because it's space. So mm. it's, it didn't seem odd that a character can drift off uh, and, and his voice goes with him and then come back. It mm. sort of, it was, it was done very... Very mm. elegantly. Um, there was a uh, talking of sound leaving the screen. Um, the Judy Christie film, uh, the Thomas Hardy story set in the West Country, and uh, her her lover is shot, and he he's on screen and the assassin is off-screen somewhere. And uh, the, the, the pistol shot comes from dead centre at the back, which is quite an unusual, just that one sound. It's going to make a jump. That, that works. It yeah. made everybody jump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so um, what keeps you busy these days? Keeps you busy these days? Well, um, I like to try and see films when I can. Um, I'm usually go at least uh, in normal times before the crackdown. I would go at least once a week. 
No, 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 but there's plenty of films to watch on television, although it's not the same. No. One of my great interests in life is video, video editing. And when I was going on holiday, I would take a holiday film, but I would completely edit it and put in sound effects and uh, music, wherever, and make, make a proper job of it. Now, that's easy to do with computers, but mm. at the beginning, it, it was I had a, an editing, a Panasonic it was, editing videotape recorder, where the mono sound, you could take off, record, and record it separately. Right. Uh, that was the only way to do it, but uh, I had quite a comprehensive system of tape recorders and commentaries and stuff. Like, I like writing commentaries which fit the picture, right. uh, which is a skill in itself. Because you, you, you don't describe what's on the film, because it's obvious. You go around it and describe something that's not visible. Right. And also, it fits it for length. Well, that um, all fascinating, absolutely fascinating stories, um, and I think I've learned quite a lot actually. Um, well, that's saying something for you. <laughs> well, uh, I, I I started my my early days were, was there was no automation. We did have rock and roll, but it, and it was mm. magnetic tape. Mm. So there's a little bit of overlap there, but I I never mixed to optical and any of that. Mm stuff but uh, so I've I've come through a different um, transition you know I I was uh, maybe well early 20s when the first hard disk recorder turned it, up yes. at the BBC and all the guys who had one eye on the you know the carriage clock and the pension were a bit kind of I don't fancy that thing and I thought well I'm probably gonna be stuck with this for a while so I had to go at it and it made sense so I've had a, a different you know, maybe the next sort of yes, set but, of revolutions. Uh, but you, uh, you're you're happy in what you're doing at this moment. For example, it seems to be uh, uh, mostly. Yes, except, <laughs> when, except when, it, when apart it, from the computer's gone crazy today. But on. other than that, we no. have um, one of my most dramatic moments was in a. I was mixing a, a film about uh, the Jewish festival, with all sorts of Jewish music. It was, it was very exciting, really, and uh, and it was difficult. My brain was getting so weary, and I thought I should be glad when it's over. But it was over before I, I knew it one morning because we we turned over everything, and uh, it slowly we stopped, and the smoke came out from behind the screen. I thought, well, that's not that's not usual, and that's where the Selson was. Master Rob Master Motor is it just shorted because it, we'd got it second hand from another studio you see this has got past its expiry date I suppose and had a complete new Selsum installed by RCA which gave me, gave me a couple of days off anyway <laughs> what, What's a Selsum? A Selsum is the name of an interlocking motor right. uh, it's a three phase generator um, driven by a synchronous motor. In the, in the days when this equipment was sort of designed, the motor system was such that it was the only satisfactory way to get three phases 
to interlock motors. It was dead easy. It was, it was all done on during the war, during the um, the gun, the, the predictors and the guns and things were all connected together with sync motors. But um, in the early days, there was no three-phase available. A lot of places. In fact, in Hollywood in Hertfordshire, when I first went there, we had an enormous generator room because uh, no, no, nobody, the mains were always falling. In other words, they'd be, the supply would be cut off for hours on end. And so we had to, had to have our own generators. Uh, were manned by two ex-servicemen. Uh, there was one called the Admiral, who was from the Navy, and one called the General, who was from the Army. And they used to sit in a chair and watch frequency and voltage and stuff. And uh, that was uh, interesting for them, I suppose. But it, it meant that we had um, um, three phase available, generated ourselves. That was a long time ago, that was at Denham. So presumably you, you, you never had to deal with time code? You know, the sort of SMPT time code? Time code? Mind. No. Just Nagra oh, Pulse? No, and... no, long, that was later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We just had, ca had pulses. Yeah. Had a camera pulse. Yeah. On, onto a Nagra or something? Yeah. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Synchro pulse, they called it. And a time, a time code was was later. And yeah. I know everything is too easy these days. And yet so complicated. I mean, sometimes I, I do find myself wondering how, you know, nowadays we have, um, we've never had microphones which are, have a better response, flatter response, more directional, quieter self-noise, the recorders, uh, you know, I mean, this thing here is this will do eight tracks yeah. of, of fantastic quality, uh, and then it's a few hundred pounds. You know, we've got all this extraordinary stuff, and yet in post production, I have hundreds and hundreds of pounds worth of well, thousands of pounds worth of, of plugins designed to clean up background noise, all this stuff. And I sort of wonder why, given that we've got better capturing stuff. Mm. I know there's a lot more going on in movies these days and, and arguably there's uh, a little bit too much going on sometimes but I wonder what, what's changed presumably in, in, back in the earlier days there was a lot of there was fairly strict discipline I think that's the problem. The whole workflow discipline. I think the the system film production is so different now uh, when I was working, it was a, a studio complete with equipment and staff. And as a producer, you, you had a package. Right. Nowadays, studio is sort of a four wall and you produce your own people and their own equipment and, and nothing standardized. I think a lot more put towards standardising the, the product within each studio. Yeah, I think, I think some of the studios have a... I've, I've worked on a few projects with, with Disney and they, 
they have a, a, a way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, I know Disney have a, a, a really uh, organised system for making their films international. Mm. And in particular with the animation stuff, where yeah. it, it's kind of relatively easy to, to yeah. churn it into, into many different languages just by swapping out the dialogue, which is in itself essentially ADR anyway, because it's animation. Uh, and they've got an extraordinary uh, and clearly defined workflow for how that happens. So which... now, if everybody did that in retrospect or some form of it, you'd make your life much easier. Yeah, but then sometimes it gets very misguided. I, I do a lot of work for the, some of the American documentary TV channels uh, and they have some very weird ideas. They want you to do the final mix they want in 5.1, but you can only deliver, the center channel must mm. only contain narration and on-screen dialogue. So if you've got a, a, a character walking along and talking and you want to add some Foley footsteps, you have to send the Foley footsteps left and right, mm. not in the center, mm. which is fine if you sit bang in the middle, but if you sit slightly off to one side, there's mm -hmm. a guy talking there and the feet are over here and it's very, strange. Yes. Uh, I think they only do it because they think they're getting a free m and &E. <laughs> But we have to make them an m and &E as well, so I don't know. Um, yes, it's uh, a funny world. It um, is. But I think a lot of it is, is, is sort of... It comes down to the bottom line, you know, how much does it, is it going to cost us? And they work that out first. Then they work. Then they decide how much is going to be allocated to sound. Whether there's going to be enough in there to do any ADR or no ADR. And if it's no ADR, they will fix it in the mix. And as you know, uh, sometimes you're successful, but not not all the time. No, no. You can't. There's only so much you do. And we've got some extraordinary tools for cleaning up. Well, maybe, but I, I've never used the Dolby system for the clean-up, you know, the, right. I forget the cat number. Oh, there was, well, there was the cat 43, was it? 43, yeah. yes, that's the one. Yeah. I've never even used it for yeah. that purpose. Well, that was a funny thing, because the instructions that I saw said, move the sliders until an improvement is heard. Hmm. And that was your instructions. I, I, can, I know the guy that wrote that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I mean, some of the tools we have nowadays, the, the, the isotope and, mm. and cedar, make these extraordinary. You know, the, the, the amount of background noise you can suppress is, is incredible. And you can fish dialogue out, you can have distorted dialogue, and you can get rid of the clipping. And... Yeah. But that's not to say we shouldn't do it right in the first place, because it's much nicer to not do it, uh, I'm sure. Even but it's surprising nicer. that uh, uh, a console today, professional, it's quite an expensive item, and yet it does not contain nearly enough of what you want. A lot yeah. of what you don't want's there, but <laughs> yeah, well, you, have to have, you have to have black boxes. Yeah, my my workflow nowadays is is entirely within the computer. Hmm. So the 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 mixing console yeah. is has no audio in it. It's just a system for inputting information. Hmm. So. Um, I can have as many compressors as I want. I can have as many EQs as I want, subject to the amount of the number of dollars I'm prepared to throw at the computer. Um, but then, you know, I just received a project that I'd worked on has been over 
to France to have a French version made. And it's come back and they've said, would you have a look at it? And I cannot believe how many gadgets they've put in line, one after another, in series, yes, yes, yes. On, on a studio recorded narration. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, a, a trained narrator in a very, very nicely treated room, mm. recording a script to cue with no pressure, and it, a very, very easy thing to record. And yet, I think there are nine separate processes, three different EQs, a de-esser, it's stuff everywhere. And as a result, the, 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 the narration that's come out of it has a dynamic range of maybe 2 dBs. Hmm. No matter well, how excited it gets. I'll tell you <laughs> something. Um, have, you, have you ever been aware of in-flight movies to any extent? Yeah, well, only as a passenger. The eight mil, ones on 8mm or 16? Oh. oh, no, no, I, I've only just seen them on planes and whatever, and that's just been video. That's, I, I got involved in, uh, in, in, in making eight millimeter, uh, albeit super eight, prints with optical sound. Now, if you can imagine, the, the width of track isn't very great. And if your printer's misaligned by sort of half a thou, it, 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 it's, it moves the track out, and together which uh, the compression, it's about a 2 dB volume range between the loudest sound and the quietest. <laughs> it's uh, compressed and limited right. beyond belief. Coupled with the fact you have to have a very expensive photographic recorder to get a decent image. We use a French one made by a gentleman who invented it called Monsieur Pico, and that was his factory. Now, P Pico, the translation of that is Sprocket. So it's Mr. Sprocket you ask for when you go and see him. And um, he, gave, he produced a fabulous, uh, he produced a fabulous negative quality. I haven't heard it in, in any others. Uh, but, uh, it's time consuming mm -hmm. because there are various ways of making an eight millimeter print. Because you can start with 35 millimeter and you can squeeze four eight millimeter print across that, albeit very little space, but you can do it and, and then rip it with, through, a, through a, a cutter afterwards. Right. But then you have to be careful what you do with the sound to record four tracks means a bit of beam splitting and uh, we, we did it the 16 millimeter way but um, we, we did it so that with a beam splitter you can record two eight millimeter on 16 that means there's two soundtracks about that much apart, one of which runs right down the edge of the film. And we had a recorder that recorded a track at a time. So having run the whole feature film, or all part of it through, then you pause, take out a spanner, move the optical system over <laughs> to record the other track. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have to rewind the, what you've recorded to a start mark 
and, and you have to use interlock motors. And it's terribly time, it's time consuming. So, yeah. you know, you, you can do, if you do a feature a day, you're winning. But when they showed in-flight movies in those days then, it, there was an actual projector, I guess. Oh, yeah, yes. It never occurred to me. This, this eight millimeter projector was horizontal. And it was in the roof, cabin roof. Yeah. And, and um, it was a continuous loop. So the tendons didn't do anything. And when it came, when it when the film finished, it was already back at the beginning again. They weren't showing Lawrence of Arabia then. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, but previous to that, they they had 16 millimeter, which was more sensible. But the equipment was a bit cumbersome, right. and that's why this company it, it just specialised in, in in producing eight millimeter copies. Um, before that, long before that, during the war, um, they made a lot of 16 millimeter copies of feature films, American feature films. And we used to get the American, uh, American print and we'd re-record it ourselves, compressing it and, and, and giving the volume range, reducing the volume range for reduction to 16 mil. Another thing we did in the army, uh, we worked closely with the, the Russians. And the Russian embassy used to ring up and say, we've got a film here and uh, can we come down again? Can you fit us in? We'd fit them in, they'd bring the film with an m and track and then they'd narrate English commentary, which we record and, and mix at the same time. But the, what I'm trying to tell you is that the Russians themselves were very, very nice people. A jolly lot, full of jokes and stuff, and laughing, not like sort of Putin. It's quite a different character. Hmm. Really not. We did quite a number of those films we did. They, they showed them in cinemas around them. Right. Rus but Russian-made films? Russian film, yeah, Life in Russia. Right. Yeah. Or the Russian Front, what the Russians were doing to the help in the war. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Well, um, um, well, well I hope, um, you hope it's been worthwhile then, you were coming no, all this way, Andrew. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I, I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, and well, you can only I feel like there might be some more, but it just really really fascinating um, I hope people uh, have enjoyed listening to this um, so from a very very sunny Worthing or near Worthing uh, we'll say uh, thank you very much and um, see you next time thank you very much John thank you Andrew so thanks again to Andrew and John um, sounds like they had a great time talking together and we really enjoyed being a part of it as well um, it was great to know John and get to know John during a very crazy and unpredictable and possibly depressing year uh, and just hear some of his stories. Um, Andrew having the opportunity to meet John like this and record this conversation is definitely one of the highlights. Yeah, John really was um, a shining light in our weekly Zoom socials. And, and as we've said before, it was a genuine privilege to have got to know John in some small way. Um, 
and we're very lucky that Andrew was able to go and speak to John and interview him at length about his remarkable career. So we just once again uh, like to offer our condolences to all John's family and close friends and, um, and wish you all the best. Yeah, absolutely. All the best to you and thanks for joining us.